We're turning uh, to the book of Acts again, um, Acts chapter 2, and we're reading from 1, verses 1 to 13, and the words will be on the screen, but there's also Bibles under the seats, and you may uh, bring God's Word up on your device, whatever that is, so, um, but it's good to be reading along, following along, and reading it together. So we're reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be like tongues of fire and that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd of them came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Gareth, thank you. Thanks, Gary. I uh, appreciate you reading the reading with the big words for me. It's good. Oh, it seems to be a theme, doesn't it? Difficult text to preach or big words. I appreciate it, mate. Thank you. Here, let's pray for a second and then we'll, we'll start. God, you are in this place. We welcome you. We love you. And now we ask, won't you speak to us? Guard our minds from distraction. Guard our hearts from anything that would be hard or Stop us receiving what you want to say to us or do within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It has been a strange week, hasn't it? It really has. There's a, there's a palpable sense of grief around our nation, no matter what your, your views on monarchy are, and uh, I know there's a range of people's thoughts in the room, there is still a palpable sense of grief and loss right across our nation and amongst many here in church. And I've been having conversations with people try, just trying to put my finger on what exactly it is because none of us, or I suspect none of us here knew Queen Elizabeth personally. And yet we all feel a sense of grief and loss in her passing, don't we? And it's different from the grief you feel when you lose a member of your family. 
But as you watch the news people talking, as you, you talk about it around dinner tables, we're all experiencing a sense of grief in some way or another. I think part of it, it's not the only part of it, but I think part of it is that for 70 years, and in that 70 year period, the world as we know it has changed more than any other 70 year period in history. Our country has changed. It is unrecognizable to what it was 70 years ago. Our experience of life is completely different. Even our experience of church has changed dramatically in, in 43 years, never mind 70 years. And yet for our nation and for many of us, the queen has been a figure of stability, a figure of constantness, who has been present with us in moments of celebration like Christmas as we watch the speech before you wash the dishes. Most homes still do that. In moments of crisis, where she spoke during the COVID pandemic, when she spoke at other moments in that 70-year period of national crisis and difficulty and struggle. Has she always got it right? No, because she's human. But has she been a remarkable picture of, of faith and integrity and gentleness and leadership? and stability present with us as a nation for 70 years. Yes, she has. And in recent years has become more transparent and more vulnerable to us on the screens, sharing more and more of herself with us. It's interesting. It's interesting. And we do grieve with her family, we do grieve with the nation. And, and we pray for Charles, we'll continue to pray for Charles as he takes on this role, King Charles III. 70 years ago when his mother stepped into the role, the world was very different. And today as Charles ascends into that role in, in a very different world with very different expectations of leadership, there will be something of having to reimagine the role of monarchy in this changing world. And Charles and others needs our prayers as he does that. For all kinds of reasons. I, I share that with you because the idea of reimagining monarchy in a changing world there's a thread there that is similar to what I want you to catch over these next weeks in this book of Acts. That, that Acts, the story of Acts, as Luke records it and gives it to us, that is now scripture, the story of Acts is not simply a moment in history that happened not 70 years ago, but 2,000 years ago, but is a movement that needs to be reimagined in every generation. We need to read this story and understand this story for what happened 2,000 years ago. But then we as a church have a responsibility to, to begin to enter into this story and reimagine what it looks like for today. What is God saying through these words for today? Because Acts tells the story, not simply of a moment in history, but of a movement to be reimagined in every generation. And so the first thing we see, and the challenge in preaching this text, there's two challenges. One is, 
If you've been around church at all, you know this story and you think you know what I'm going to say, and maybe you do, and that's okay. And the other challenge is, this is a story about the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church. The danger is we read it like an academic exercise or a history letter without any experience of the Spirit of God in our receiving of this word and our stepping out from this place. So we want to guard against both those things. I want to say three things this morning as time allows. The first one is this. This story in Acts tells us about Pentecost, about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost had nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. That that is the reality. Pentecost was one of the three big Jewish festivals. Think Christmas, Easter, and harvest in our Presbyterian tradition. Pentecost was one of the three big Jewish festivals. It happened 50 days. Pentecost literally means 50. It happened 50 days after Passover. Um, Literally in the Jewish mindset, it was the day after seven Sabbaths after Passover. Just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It was named the the Festival of First Fruits. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 23. You can read about it in Deuteronomy as well. Um, And it was the Festival of First Fruits. It was was a big deal in the Jewish calendar. But but the meaning had evolved. It, It evolved from a kind of harvest festival, thanking God for his faithfulness in providing for us. Its meaning had evolved. Think of it this way, um... I'm a father of daughters. Pray for me. I keep saying that to you. We're going to start a support group called Father of Daughters. Uh, It's getting harder. Like, the the girls have their birthday parties coming up, and a few years ago, birthday parties were, you know, pink everything and unicorns. That that was it. Now, birthday parties are ripped jeans and crop tops. (laughs) Pray for me, please. Um, the, The meaning had evolved of birthday parties in our house. The meaning of this festival of Pentecost in the Jewish mindset, that the festival of first fruits had evolved in the Jewish mindset because more than simply this harvest-type festival, now what it became known as in the Jewish mind in Jesus' day was the celebration of the time when Moses had ascended Mount Sinai. Do you remember when he brought the people out of Egypt? He ascended Mount Sinai, was given the Ten Commandments, was given the law, and this was now the festival for celebrating the giving of the law. So you had Jews from all these different countries that, that Gary read about for us, and there were Jews but just living in different places, traveling on pilgrimage to Jerusalem for this festival that was more than a harvest festival. It was the time annually to remember that God had given us his word. Now, not all of this, but certainly the first five books. Maybe even a fair bit of the Old Testament at this stage. This was the celebration of God giving his word to the church. I think it's remarkable that this is the day that God chose to pour his spirit out on the church. On the day when God's people had gathered to celebrate the word of God, God pours out his Holy Spirit. He gives them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there's something in that that you cannot take the word and experience it separately from the spirit. You cannot take the spirit and experience it separately from the word of God. If you say, well, I I just need the Bible, I just need the Word of God, I don't need the Holy Spirit. 
Maybe you wouldn't say it that blatantly, but maybe that's your lived experience. The danger is you read this book and it becomes dry and dead and historical. And as you read it, you become pharisaical. You become, uh, it becomes all about religious laws and do this and don't do that. And you try your best to follow the rules and point your finger at people who don't. That's if you read this book devoid of the Spirit of God. But the other danger is also true. If you are are light touch on the Bible, and there's a danger in this because increasingly um, we have a generation of Christians in the church growing up who, who, who don't read this book. All they do is interact with apps, audio apps, and listen to a little five minute snippet. And that's my Bible time done for the day. That's my devotional time done for the day. I'm not criticizing those things are helpful, but they don't replace actually picking up and reading the Bible. And the danger is if you say, all I need is the Spirit and I'm not going to prioritize the Bible. Well, there's more than one Spirit. We celebrate and we believe in and we worship the Holy Spirit, but there are other principalities and powers. There are other demonic forces that influence and whisper and speak. And if you... Do not use God's word, the Bible, to help you recognize the character and the fruit and the voice of the Holy Spirit to you. You're in danger of being influenced by a dark force. You need the Spirit to help you read the word and you need the word to help you recognize and trust the leading of the Holy Spirit. You cannot have one without the other. I love that the day that God the Father chose to pour out the gift of his Holy Spirit on the church for his people was the day his people were celebrating the word of God. Isn't that cool? I love that. That's why as a church, we hunger for his spirit. That's why as a church, we read our Bibles. These are not two separate things. They they mesh together. They come together in our values and our priorities as a church. The second thing I want to share with you today um, is the movement of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Because there's a lot of confusion about this. When I was a kid in primary school, um, I, I didn't overly enjoy break time. So I did. that sounds like a strange thing to say, because most kids love break time. But break time, if you're a wee lad in my primary school, it was football time. I, I wasn't great. I didn't have those silky, you know, skills, you know. You all, that, all that nonsense there, Cliff, you with me? Um, I, I didn't have all those silky skills. I was kind of a, a chubby kid, and I wasn't that coordinated. And when it came bell and break time, we all lined up in the bike shed in the, that dreaded moment of picking teams. Yeah, remember that moment? Which for a couple of you superstars was class. The superstars were, were a guy, Gareth Harris and Stuart Edwards. They always picked the teams. They were the best players. And I'm standing there in my head down going, don't pick me last, don't pick me last, don't pick. And I was always about the last two or three to get picked because I was rubbish at football. Don't feel too bad. A few years later, I discovered rugby, a sport where you totally ignore the ball and running into people and knocking them over is celebrated. I was much better at it. So I always kind of found my niche there in that. Um, but yeah, football in primary school for me was not a happy experience. I, I wasn't one of the superstars, so I kind of spent most of the time at the very edge in goals, most likely. Um, fast forward 35 years, and we as a church host the Glen Torren inclusive football team. My only lament is it's Glentoran, but that's okay. Um, we, we hosted Glentoran youth inclusive football team. We, we have young people of all levels of ability 
and not just football ability, but with different types of disability as well, coming here to the church on a Wednesday night to play football. It's not about the superstars. Everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to participate. Everybody gets to be part of it. Nobody gets picked last. Nobody gets left out. And I, I, want, I want you to hold those two pictures in your mind. Hold those two pictures in your mind. Luke gives us this book of Acts, the, the recording of the story of the early church. But he also writes the gospel of Luke. So he gives us the gospel of Luke and then he gives us the, the book of Acts. And the gospel of Luke is the, the, the story of the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. And then the book of Acts picks up the story after that and talks about the Jesus people and what they do when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Near the start of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tell, or Luke tells a story of Jesus at his baptism. And at his baptism, Jesus goes into the water. John the Baptist baptizing people in the Jordan River. Jesus goes into the river. He's baptized as he's coming out of the water. The heavens are open. We're told the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, comes to rest upon him and stays upon him. You know the story? You with me? Now, the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus in that moment, did Jesus become a Christian in that moment? Of course not. Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus in that moment. It's interesting that Jesus' ministry doesn't start until the Holy Spirit comes and rests on him. I want you to hold that picture. Fast forward, um, three, three and a half years, and you have this group of Jesus followers, men and women. The disciples are there, but there's others there as well, in the room, praying, waiting for the gift that God says he will give to his people. On the day of Pentecost, there's the sound like the blowing of a violent wind, and what seems to be, we're told, tongues of fire, flames come and rest upon each of the people there. When the Spirit came on Jesus, it was in the form of a dove. When the Spirit came on God's people in that moment, it was in fire. When, when, when the Spirit came on Jesus, it came and rested on one person. But at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and rested on his followers, his disciples, it rested on everybody. He, the Spirit rested on everybody. Same two questions. Was that the moment the disciples became Christians? No. They were Christians long before that. interesting, though, that that was the moment that their ministry properly began, isn't it? I think that's fascinating, that you have the same picture played out in Luke's gospel with Jesus, with just with Jesus, and in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, same thing happens, but on everybody. Because when we move from the Jesus story into the Acts story, what Jesus sets up through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and the Spirit comes. And the Spirit couldn't come in this way until Jesus had done his work and ascended into heaven. The Spirit comes to enable everybody to play. Everybody gets to participate. Every Christian gets to participate. Because the Spirit is not just on the superstars anymore, like it was for the whole story of the Old Testament. The Spirit is now on every single person.
person. Every person gets to receive the Holy Spirit. Every person get, who's a Christian, sorry, gets to receive the Holy Spirit. Every person who's a follower of Jesus gets to participate and be empowered to take part in his church and his kingdom story here on earth. That means you guys, every bit as much as it meant the followers back in that upper room 2,000 years ago. Acts chapter two, the story of Pentecost is not about salvation. It's not about the guys becoming Christians. They already were in my mind. It's about empowerment. It's about everyone getting to participate in the story that God is telling. And I said it's about the movement of the Holy Spirit, and, and we've said this before, but it's always clear in people's minds. The Spirit of God is everywhere. The Psalm of Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your Spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the depths of the earth, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even then... I cannot hide from you. Your spirit is with me. God's presence is everywhere. God's spirit is everywhere all of the time. There is a common grace in the movement of God in the world that impacts every person all of the time. Not a single person has breath in their lungs without God enabling it to happen. His spirit is everywhere. We know that, don't we? Yeah, omnipresence. God is everywhere all of the time. God's Spirit is around us for everyone. But God's Spirit is in us as Christians for us. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, he talks about the realm of the Spirit and the realm of the flesh. And he says, in the realm, you are in the realm of the Spirit, not in the realm of the flesh, if the Spirit of God lives in you. That when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and makes his home in your life. So the Spirit who is everywhere, all of the time around you, there's another movement. He comes and makes his home in your life when you give your life to Jesus. And he transforms your, your, your innermost being from darkness to light. He transforms your, your innermost being from an orphan from God to an adopted child of God. You become part of his family because of the work of the Spirit in your life. Paul in Galatians talks about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So the seed of the Spirit is planted within you and it, the fruit grows and the fruit is the character of Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, kindness, self-control. Was that nine? I said them fast enough. Hopefully it was. But the Spirit of God who is around us all of the time also comes and makes his home in Christians and transforms us and matures us from the inside out, sanctifying us, growing our character, our capacity to love and serve others. But there's a third movement of the Holy Spirit that we sometimes get a little bit confused about, and that is what we see here at Pentecost, where the Spirit comes and rests upon the believers. Comes and rests upon them and doesn't leave. If the Spirit is everywhere for everyone, if the Spirit is in you as a Christian for you and for your maturity and for your development as a Christian, the Spirit comes and rests on you for others. Jesus' ministry did not begin until the Spirit came and rested on him. The disciples' ministry did not begin until the Spirit came and rested on them. When he comes and rests on you, he gives you gifts. 
Those gifts are for the building up of the church and for the loving and the serving of other people. When we pray, come Holy Spirit, we're not saying that God's not in the room. Of course he is. We're not saying that God's not in each individual Christian. Of course he is. What we're praying is, God, come and rest on your people now. Come and rest on your people now. Come and speak to your people now. Come and give gifts to your people now. Come and move in the way you want to move now in the room. There might be questions about that. I'm really happy to have that conversation with anybody who wants to buy me a coffee. Finally, third, the gifts of the Spirit. And and, and listen, there are a range of gifts. You can read about them in Scripture. Just Google when you get home today, gifts of the Holy Spirit, and you will see everything from faith to prayer to administration. You will see everything from encouragement to helping. You will see prophetic and healing. You will see a whole range of gifts. Every Christian has a gift of the Holy Spirit. But what I want to talk about is what we see here in the story of Acts. The Spirit comes and rests on the believers and they are given the gift of tongues. Now, don't panic, but we're going to talk about this. There are two types of tongues in the New Testament that we see, two types of gifts of tongues, spiritual gifts of tongues. One is what um, is translated um, glossolalia. And that is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, tongues of angels. It is an angelic language that uh, the Holy Spirit gives to some Christians. Doesn't mean you're a better Christian, doesn't mean you're a proper Christian, doesn't mean you're a superstar because there's no such thing as superstars. Everyone gets to play. But some Christians are given the gift of tongues, which is simply a different way to pray. It's a way that maybe your mind doesn't fully understand, but your heart is completely connected with God in that moment of prayer. It's not a gift we should use at the front of church unless there's somebody to understand it and interpret it. Um, It's a gift some of you have, I know. It's a gift that, that I have, but it doesn't make us better Christians because you have gifts as well, and they're all important. They're all vital for the church. Wonderful story. Uh, we were talking about this in our home um, uh, earlier this year. And my youngest daughter, who is the, the straight talker, no messing about with Lily, um, we started talking about this and she goes, what's the gift of tongues? And I, I explained to her what it was and she says, can you pray like that? And I said, well, yeah, I do sometimes. And she says, would you show me? And I said, well, it's not something you sort of show off with, but why don't we pray and you pray and then I'll pray and then as part of it, I'll pray in tongues. And she said, okay, that's fine. So she prayed She's not nine. She prayed, and then I prayed, and then I prayed in tongues, and then said amen. And I opened my eyes, and she's like. <laughs> and I was kind of going, okay, waiting for it. She goes, you're just making that up. <laughs> <laughs> I love her, her questioning spirit, and at times even cynical nature. I think it leads her into truth. in in a much more profound way than just accepting everything at face value. So so we talked about that. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, I wish every one of you could pray in tongues. But more than that, I wish you could prophesy. I wish you could recognize what God is doing in a moment. I wish you could hear his voice. I wish you could speak his word into a given situation. So Paul recognized the value of the gift of tongues. It's not a task-oriented gift. That's why it tends to be undervalued. 
It's not a task-oriented gift, but it's an intimacy gift. It's the one gift that the Spirit gives that is not directly about serving other people, but is about connecting you with God, about your own spiritual formation. But that's not the gift that we see here at Pentecost. I want to say that very clearly. That's not the gift that we see here at Pentecost. The gift that we see at Pentecost is the gift of languages. It's the gift of languages. And let me be very clear. It is not that the Holy Spirit came and gave them the ability to learn languages really, really quickly. Some people have a natural God-given ability to learn languages really quickly. I'm not one of them. I've struggled with languages all my life. Even English has reached for me at times. But some people are able just to turn their ear to something and very quickly pick up another language. It's wonderful. That's not what this is. There was a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that gave the people in this room the ability to speak other languages to those who had gathered in Jerusalem that day. People from other countries were there who spoke different languages and the Holy Spirit in that moment gave the ability to speak in different languages so they could walk out the door and communicate the gospel to to all these different people in their own language. And then Peter preached on the back of it and thousands give their life to Jesus. There's the fruit of the gift right there. If you're questioning the gift, look at the fruit. Thousands give their life to Jesus in that moment. But I want to suggest as we land this now, there was more than simply a gift of languages going on when the Holy Spirit moved in that moment. I've heard people before say that what happened in that moment was the disciples had this conviction of the resurrection that enabled them to go out and and, and preach the gospel. Well, I'm not convinced by that because the disciples had had spent time with the resurrected Jesus. They had put their, Thomas had put his finger in the holes in Jesus' hand, his hand in his side. Others had talked with him. Peter had been recommissioned by him and loved and restored by him. They'd sat and had food with him on the beach. 500 different people had seen the resurrected Jesus. These guys didn't doubt Jesus' resurrection. They were convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. They had seen him ascend into heaven. Pentecost was not about a conviction of the resurrection. They already had that. And Pentecost wasn't primarily about the gift of languages. They they, they received a spiritual gift in languages, no doubt about that. But all of those Jews who had traveled from different countries, who spoke different languages, who had come to Jerusalem, they, they all spoke Hebrew and most of them spoke Greek. And the disciples would have all spoke Hebrew and most would have spoke Greek because those were the common languages of the day that, that rippled around the empire. So at any moment, those disciples could have stepped out of the room and preached in Hebrew or preached in Greek and most of the people there would have understood what they were saying. They already had a conviction that Jesus had risen from the dead. They already had the ability to communicate. What happened in the room at Pentecost, in the midst of everything else, and there was loads going on, but what happened in the room at Pentecost was the Holy Spirit came and did something in the hearts of the disciples that broke their hearts for people who didn't know Jesus. 
that this ceased to simply be information that was relevant to those who wanted to hear. And, and they suddenly started to feel this burden, this grief for people from all over the world who didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah to the point that the only thing they could do was step out of this room and just grab the first person they saw and say, you need to hear about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. In the midst of everything else that was going on, the Father in that moment sent his Spirit onto each of the disciples and, and broke their hearts for the things that break God's heart, for the least and the lost and the lonely. And they were so overwhelmed with the love that God had poured into them in that moment for his people who didn't yet know him that, that they, they just had to step out of their, so far out of their comfort zones. to tell the crowd about Jesus. And not everybody understood what was going on. 3,000 people did. And a movement began that birthed, what, 2.2 billion in the world today, including Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, including many of you here today. And as I stand, as I sat this week and read this story again, and I've read this and preached this dozens of times, I'm saying, God, help me to reimagine what this is, what this looks like. Show me what you're saying to us as a people. I was struck by something I hadn't seen before. We live in a cultural moment when people from other parts of the world are choosing to come and live in Belfast. We have Syrians and we have Kurdish and we have Arabic speakers. We have Farsi speakers and we have Afghans, Iranians. Because it's not safe to live in their own home and they're, they're coming to live in Belfast. And we struggle with language. We, we do struggle with language, but, but God's Spirit is moving in this church and has been over the past number of years and more intensifying it this summer not in a single moment, but in a journey, breaking the hearts of people in this church for those from other parts of the world who don't know Jesus, who are coming to our doorstep. That there is the beginning of something happening here that resembles what happened at Pentecost when the Father breaks the hearts of his people for the people the Father loves. And we should be expecting and anticipating more love, but with it, more power. And we shouldn't be scared to say, God, help me to communicate. Help me to tangibly reach out in love and help me to communicate and help me to articulate the story of your son, Jesus Christ, to people where there's a language barrier. And to do it looking through the lens of what happened in Acts and to say, God, you did it then, come and do it again. Come and do it again.